Hello, my name is Annalise. The Old Testament reading is found in Habakkuk 2, 2-4. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, and it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 8, 26 through 28. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through the wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. The word of the Lord. If you are able, please stand for the gospel reading found in John eleven thirty-two through 35. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for the way that you're already speaking and moving in this service today. Lord, we ask that as we listen to your scriptures being read and being taught, that Holy Spirit, you would be the rushing wind of God that comes and fills our hearts and our minds, that speaks to us, that stirs us up. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, New Life Downtown. Y'all are fired up this morning. I like it. I like it. Yeah. (laughs) You're alive. And you're in the house. A couple weeks ago, I came across a a news story that popped on my my phone, and I clicked on it because it sounded so fascinating. A 52-year-old engineer on a supply ship named Perevertolov, I think, was feeling dizzy around 4 a.m. in the engine room of the supply ship. They were sailing in the Pacific Ocean, far from New Zealand, but that would be the closest sort of country point of reference. And he started feeling dizzy at 4 a.m., so right after he had logged in his activity, he went up to the top deck, and as he was looking over the railing, he got so dizzy that he actually fell over. And he fell over into the waters at 4 a.m. It was pitch black. Nobody knew he was missing until much later in the day. Treading water, trying to stay alive in the middle of the Pacific Ocean in the pitch black night... As dawn began to break, he saw something on the horizon. He saw a black dot on the horizon. And something convinced him to swim toward that black dot. He had no idea what it was. It could have been a whale. It could have been a shark. could have been an illusion. Two hours of treading water in the Pacific. Who knows what he was seeing. 
but he saw this black dot on the horizon and he thought, I'm going to swim toward it. And as he swam toward it, he discovered it was an abandoned fishing buoy. And exhausted in that moment, all he could do was cling to that fishing buoy and hang on to it. This is now probably around 6 a.m. It would be 12 hours later before his ship would find him. Of course, that morning they had discovered that he was missing. They sent out search parties. And here he is for 12 hours clinging on to this fishing buoy. 52-year-old man. And finally his ship comes in the vicinity and he screams and they hear this faint voice. And they come close and rescue him. The experts who were involved in the search and rescue mission said it was this little floating fishing buoy that saved his life. Or if you'd like, the black dot on the horizon. There are times when we are in profound disorientation, profound disruption. You find yourself not where you thought you would be. Maybe it began with dizziness but ended up in the ocean in the middle of the night. Maybe it began with, I don't know, this thing started to fall apart and in a matter of moments, life itself unraveled. Maybe it was a medical diagnosis. Maybe it was a relationship decision. Maybe it was a financial issue with the business. Maybe it was something else. But in a moment, things spiral quickly out of control. And when you find yourself in a place of profound disruption and disorientation, what we need is a black dot on the horizon that we can swim toward, some kind of fixed point that we can say, that's what I'm going to go toward. It's doubtful whether our human psychology, the, the strength of our mind is such that if we didn't have a goal or a purpose, it's doubtful if we would be able to survive some 14 hours like that. For us as Christians, we know there is only one fixed point that we move towards. It's God himself. There are lots of moments we've lived through a long season of this in all kinds of different ways where it feels like we've been thrown overboard in the middle of the ocean in the dark of night. Is there some fixed point on the horizon that I can move toward? And as followers of Jesus, we know that fixed point is God himself. When you are disoriented, friends, fix your heart on a faithful God. When you find yourself disoriented, fix your heart on a faithful God. When you find that everything else has changed and it's upside down and you don't know which way is north or south or east or west, fix your heart on a faithful God. We're in the book of Habakkuk this morning, and Habakkuk is one of these minor prophets that we're continuing the series called Everyday Prophets. Everyday prophets, because for the most part, many of these prophets were ordinary individuals to whom the word of the Lord came. And we're now near the end, kind of the middle toward the end of this journey through the 12. And our question is, at the beginning here, is who is Habakkuk? Habakkuk 1 verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. He's a prophet. <laughs> He's one of the few minor prophets that are actually identified as such. Many of them, it just says the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. But Habakkuk seems to have had maybe a bit more credentialing, maybe a bit more experience. He's actually called a prophet. By our best construction of a timeline, he's a contemporary of Nahum, whom we talked about last week, only a little bit younger. 
Both of them were in Judah, that southern kingdom. If you've got this historical context in your mind now, remember that the big nation of Israel that was united under David and Solomon had split into two. The north was called Israel or Samaria. The south was called Judah. And all of these prophets are dealing with one or two of those, either the north or the south. Habakkuk is in the south, in Judah. Nahum spoke, about, spoke to the Assyrians about what God would do for them or to them. Habakkuk is speaking to God about what's going on in the world. Sometimes we think of prophetic acts as speaking on behalf of God to the people of God. But how many of you know that prayer is just as prophetic when we're speaking to God on behalf of the people of God? And that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's not saying, okay, the people of God, I've heard from God. This is the word for you. He's saying, okay, this is, let let me talk to God about this. God! What's going on? That's what Habakkuk is doing. And he's not any less prophetic for doing that. It, it challenges our narrow definition that the prophet has to be the person that looks in the crystal ball and understands everything that's going on in the world. Oftentimes, prophets are confused. Oftentimes, prophets are puzzled. But what makes them prophets is they talk to God about it. What makes us complainers and not prophets is when we go to social media about it. I mean, there's too many people who think they're being prophetic because they post something on Twitter or Facebook, but the real prophets talk to God about it. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's saying, there's something wrong with the world, but I'm not going to come up with a witty tweet. I'm going to pray about it. Habakkuk is going to talk to God about what's going on in the world. The key text in this book, and it's only three chapters. I don't know if you had a chance to read it this week. You could listen to it on audiobook if you'd like later today. But Habakkuk 2, verse 2, the text we heard being read, I think is the key text in this book. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Actually, it's not the, yeah, it is the verse that we read. So that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits for an appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But then he says, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. When we come to God with our questions, we emerge with a deeper faith. When we come to God with our questions, we emerge with a deeper faith. I think sometimes we imagine that to have faith is to not have questions. Or to have faith is to not have doubts. To have faith is to never wonder what's happening in the world. To have faith is to just be like, I love it. It's awesome. I'm blessed. Habakkuk shows us that actually when you come to God with your questions, you emerge with a deeper kind of faith. That living by faith means turning to God with your questions. Here we are in the second Sunday in Lent and... Lent is often that season where we remember the suffering of Christ and we think about our own human suffering and our own pain. Lent is a time to dig deep with God with our own questions and dilemmas and laments and more. And Friends, I want to say to us this morning that even if you don't walk away with answers, you will come away with a deeper faith. The result of seeking God in the midst of your questions is not that you've solved the riddles. 
And we think, I just want to, I'm going to study the Bible. I just need the, where's the answer to why God allows evil? You may not get the clean and tidy answer that you were hoping for, but you know what you will get? Contact with God. Relationship with God. You can't wrestle with God and not end up being in contact with him. And that's the whole point. That's what Habakkuk is doing. And so this morning, I want to say just two things. A truncation of my normal three points. I want to say just two things about how Habakkuk shows us what faith is like. The first is this. Lament is an act of faith. Lament is an act of faith. The structure of Habakkuk is the prophet gives a lament and then God gives a response. The prophet gives a lament and then God gives a response and then Habakkuk gives a response. That's the third movement of of the book. But the lament takes up two-thirds of the book. If you think about the way it's structured, his lament and God's response, his lament, God's response, that's about two-thirds of the book, first two chapters roughly. And there's two laments that Habakkuk brings before God. The first lament is found in verse 2 through 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk now is talking about a social issue in his context. He's talking about Judah. And he's talking about why it is that God will allow people in power in Judah to pervert justice. People who are in power use their power in such a way that it's not just anymore. We can, the, the list of parallels and examples in our day are too long to count. But the first lament, if you will, is a how long lament. It's how long. How long, Lord, will I cry for help? And maybe for some of you, your how long, dot, 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 if you were to fill in the blank, your how long is like Habakkuk's. It's like, well, how long, Lord, will you allow corruption? And how long will you allow injustice? And and it's out there. For others of you, the how long is closer to home, maybe. And how long, Lord, with sickness? How long will this medical journey? How long with grief? How long with financial struggles? How long with wayward children? How long, Lord? There was a mother in North Africa named Monica who had a son who was a prodigal. And she prayed for him constantly. Monica was always praying for her boy. Once he left in the middle of the night and she tracked him down. Tracked him down, like followed him. (laughs) Eventually he had a radical encounter with the Lord and he wrote about it famously. He said that she found him one night and she said, look, I'm getting old, but there's only one reason and one reason alone that I want to stay alive, she said to him. And that is to see you become a Christian. One day he did. And he wrote about it in a collection called The Confessions. His name was St. Augustine. 
maybe the greatest theologian of Western Christianity. Augustine was a prodigal for most of his adult life, went away always on the run as a young man, ran away to Milan and then to Rome, and through every run, every turn to a party city, every turn to university life that was the opposite direction of his mother's prayers, Monica kept praying. I don't know what Monica prayed. (laughs) We have Augustine's stories. We don't have hers. But I have a hunch that there were a lot of how longs in Monica's prayers. How long, Lord? How long? How long? The second lament that Habakkuk lifts in verse 12, Are you not from everlasting, O my Lord, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What's he talking about? Why are you silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? What Habakkuk is, his second lament, is that God is going to deal with the wickedness in Judah, but he's going to deal with it with an even more wicked nation named Babylon. In Habakkuk's Habakkuk's mind, he's like, if you're going to deal with evil, let the righteous be the agents of discipline for the wicked. That's what we want, isn't it? We look at the world and we're like, those people are not doing good things. Let the righteous people triumph over the wicked. And God ends up using a more wicked people to correct the wicked people. And you're like, what? What, what are you doing? Like the hierarchy of righteousness, is, that's not how it's supposed to work. God's like, you don't know my ways. Yeah, that's right. But Habakkuk's second lament is how could you? How could you? The first lament is how long? The second lament is how could you? God, how could you do that? I asked you to fix this problem, and you introduce a worse problem. You know, it was like the woman who once swallowed a fly. And then she swallowed a spider to catch the fly. And you know how this goes. And you're like, this is not good. Like, that's not how you fix problems. (laughs) That's what Habakkuk is saying. He's like, what? Like, I get it. We're not perfect. But Babylon... You're going to use Babylon? Have you ever felt that way? You're like, God, I get that the church isn't perfect, but you're going to use, fill in the blank, to correct and purify us? How could you? But there's something underneath this how could you that gives us a key insight into lament. You notice that Habakkuk says his how could you statements. He doesn't say how could you. He says, why do you? use this nation. But he appeals to God's purity of character. See, this is an important difference between a lament and a complaint. Complaining kind of in the modern sense versus a lament in the biblical sense. A lament is an appeal to God based on confidence in his character. It says, I know you, and I know you don't approve of that. So how could you? That's the logic of the prophet. I know you. I know that you're pure. I know you don't think Babylon is good. I know you don't think that. But how could you use them to do your work? 
The point is, it's an appeal based on confidence in God's character. A complaint is not an appeal, it's an accusation. A complaint is an accusation, not to, so keep this on the screen. A lament is an appeal to God. A complaint is an accusation against God. Not based on confidence in his character, but that actually maligns his character. Two people can go through the same situations in life. And one of them could say, God, I know that you don't, this is not actually what you are like. So how could you allow this? And the other person going through the same thing could say, God, I see how it is. You're mean, you're ruthless, you're cold, you're bad. One appeals to God on the basis of his character. The other accuses, makes an accusation against God in a way that maligns his character. Sometimes in our day, we, 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 we don't know that there's this healthy option of lament. And so we, we do know, we know people who attack God and malign God and we're like, okay, we're not going to do that. And, and then we think the other option is just don't say anything. Just keep quiet. I'm just going to act like everything's okay. But the scriptures show us a different approach to that. You don't have to act like everything's okay, nor do you have to turn your back and accuse God. You can actually appeal to God on the basis of God, on the basis of who God himself is. What's great is that God responds to Habakkuk. And he says, this is later on in chapter 2, verses 6 through 19, he says, I will judge Babylon. I will judge the Chaldeans. In other words, he assures the prophet that the prophet's confidence in God's character was not misplaced. He says, you, you, you were right. I am pure enough to recognize that Babylon is not only not better than Judah, they're worse than Judah. And I will judge them. I will deal with this. I won't let it slide. The the how longs and the how could you's are answered by God to the prophet. But not in the time that he wants. Not in the timing that he wants. And that's why the key verse in this book is, the vision is yet for an appointed time. It does not lie, but you will have to wait. You're going to have to wait for it. And as you wait, bring your lament as an act of faith. And as you wait, the second part of this, Habakkuk 3, verse 17, the second thing we learn about waiting with faith. Habakkuk 3, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, somebody say this out loud, yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's how Habakkuk ends. Actually, it ends with this little postscript that says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. I love that because Habakkuk's going to get all musical now. He's going to be like, do we have a choir around here? Got the violin, the lute maybe, the timbrel, like... Let's get our praise going. 
He starts out with how long and how could you, and he ends with, let's get the band back together. Praise is an act of faith. Lament is an act of faith, but so is praise. So is praise. Lament is an act of faith because we're appealing to God on the basis of his character, but we don't like what we're seeing. Praise is an act of faith because we're saying, surely something else is coming. Lament is an act of faith that says it should not be this way. Praise is an act of faith that says it will not always be this way. Praise is an act of faith that says it will not always be this way. Praise is rooted in the revelation of who God is based on what God has done. Praise is rooted in the revelation of who God is based on what God has done. See, listen, praise is not positive thinking. Praise is not mind over matter. Let's just think about rainbows and butterflies. Praise is not, let's just ignore what's happening here. Praise is not wishful thinking that has no basis or grounds. I love that Aaron pointed this out as he was leading us in worship, which is probably why y'all are so fired up already. Great job from our worship team this morning. Great job from our worship team. Our praise for God is rooted in his character. And his character is revealed by his actions. You won't find in the Old Testament praise for God in the abstract. We, we are products of a sort of a Western rationalistic sort of thing. So we can, we can do work in abstractions for a really long time. I don't think the Hebrews were like that. I don't think the Hebrews delved in abstracts. So... Western theologians created systematic theology where we can kind of say attribute one of God, attribute two of God. We can kind of go down the attributes of God. You ever wondered why the Bible isn't written as attributes of God? It's written as the acts of God. It's written as the story, the narrative of the acts of God. I got nothing against systematic theology, but when you, when you get your theology from the Bible, you have to be careful that you don't ever dehistoricize it or uproot it from the fact that this is a God who acts in space and time, and the chief climactic moment of his action was when the second person of the Trinity was clothed in human flesh and entered into space and time, lived and suffered and died, and was raised from the dead. That's why we said it in the creed today. That's why, by the way, if you ever wonder, boy, what did Pontius Pilate do to get mentioned in the creed? (laughs) Like, it's the only, like, historical figure that gets mentioned. Poor chap. I don't think it was as much of, you know, 300 years later throwing shade on an old regional ruler as much as it was trying to say, this happened in history. This happened in history. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified and died. Praise is rooted in the revelation of who God is based on what God has done. Habakkuk says this. In verse 2, Lord, I have heard your reputation. I have seen your work. Think about that for a moment. I have heard your reputation. I know it. I mean, how many hundreds of years have the people of God known the acts of God and rehearsed? 
God, we remember that you rescued us from Egypt. God, we remember that you took us into this land. God, we remember. And they're rehearsing Passover, and they're rehearsing this deliverance, and they're reminding themselves of it every Sabbath, every festival. They're reminding themselves. He's like, I've heard of it. And he's like, actually, I've even seen it. I've seen your work. And he says, over time, revive it. Do it again. Over time, make it known. Though angry, he says, God, please remember your compassion. I've seen it, God. I know it's who you are. I know that you've done this. So, Lord, would you do it again? When you read forward from Habakkuk into the Gospels, you see Jesus, who in many ways is recapitulating the prophetic tradition. Uh, He is taking his place in a long line of prophets. And Jesus himself comes as a prophet doing mighty acts, gathering a people, but also doing what prophets do, weeping. Jesus joins us in our lament. Joins us in our lament. And so... When Jesus looks over in Jerusalem and weeps and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it and you missed the hour of your visitation. This is Jesus like Habakkuk was lamenting over Judah where Jerusalem was. Here's Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. This is Jesus when Lazarus dies. Not just Jesus weeping over the state of culture, but Jesus weeping over the loss that is personal. Lazarus dies. Every funeral I've done in the last decade, I think, I preach from John 11. It's so powerful to me because Martha comes with questions about the resurrection. Jesus is happy to talk about that. Sometimes grief is about questions. We've already said that today, right? Bring your questions to Jesus. He's not scared. And he gives himself as the answer. He says, Martha, I am the resurrection. Mary comes not in a moment with questions, but in a puddle of tears. And just falls at his feet and starts weeping. And to Mary, he doesn't start talking about, well, Mary, you see, I am the resurrection. And with Mary, he just says, oh. In fact, the Greek for some of these phrases that he was deeply troubled in his spirit is a groan like the way an animal grunts. If you've been in Eastern cultures or Middle Eastern cultures or even in, in parts of Africa, you've heard the, oh, the groan. From the bowels of your being. Jesus is not giving a little polite cry like, so so sorry about your loss. When you're in the depths of despair, Jesus goes, joins you in your lament. Joins you in the very depths of your pain. But Jesus doesn't just join us in our lament. Reminds me of the scene in the West Wing 
where Leo is a recovering alcoholic, and he's talking to one of the other staff members. He's telling them the story. He says, when a man's in a pit, some people throw a pamphlet down in there. And he goes, but the true friend is one who jumps in the pit with you. And he goes, but Leo, then we're both in the pit. And he goes, it's just that I've been in the pit before, and I know the way out. Jesus doesn't just join us in our lament to stay in the lament. He knows the way out. He went down to the grave. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, God raised him up. He knows the way out. He knows the way out. And so Jesus doesn't just join us in our lament. He is our reason for praise. He is our reason for praise. He shows us what God is actually like. The God who does not let death have the final word. God who does not let sin win. He is the God who redeems, who restores, who sets right. He is the God who raises the dead. That's why we can praise though the fig tree does not blossom. That's why we can praise though there's no fruits. That's why we can praise when the flocks are cut off and there's no herd in the stalls. That's why we can still praise. Because even if the worst thing happens, the worst thing will not be the last thing. Because Jesus shows us the God who raises the dead. Who raises the dead. Here we come to the table this morning. The table is the place where sorrow and praise meet. The sorrow of Christ's suffering, entering into our suffering. And the praise, the Eucharist, the thanksgiving that comes because Christ is risen and Christ will come again. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?